This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. Hey, traders, this is Eddie Horn from Top Step Trader, and this is Limit Up where we talk with traders, market participants, and trading psychologists to help you improve your trading. This week, I'm joined here at the broadcast booth by my producer, the man behind the curtain, Mark Meadows. Hey, Mark. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Eddie. Good. How's it going? Well, Mark, it's uh, going really good. Now, this week, uh, we're talking with Haim Bodek. Haim started his trading career with legendary trader Blair Hull, and uh, though he spent a lot of time in the automated trading, he's most famous for being a whistleblower in a couple high-profile cases against bats and the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, this is going to be an awesome conversation. Absolutely, Eddie. And, uh, you know, you called him a whistleblower, but I think he had a, another term for himself. What was that? Uh, he, he termed it uh, a little bit more sexier with um, Bounty Hunter. That's going to be a good uh, business card there. I think so. I think I'd rather, yeah, Bounty Hunter sounds cool. Yeah, but um, right before we get to uh, the conversation with Haim, the reason I dropped in is I wanted to uh, to chat with you about what we have lined up here in August. Um, some pretty incredible interviews uh, you have scheduled and and a couple already recorded. Who do you got uh, coming mm. up on the agenda? <laughs> uh, we've got Brett Steenbarger. Larry Benedict and Linda Rashke. So those are uh, some traders with some pretty big bank accounts. Uh, and some pretty big skills, too, I'll tell you that That's for right. sure. Definitely, and definitely going to uh, focus in on those those lessons that you know our trader audience can take from that. Um, so, you know, we're really focused on uh, growing our audience and uh you know, I just wanted to also mention that if uh, anyone out there hasn't gone to iTunes and left us a rating and review, um, that's going to be a huge help as we look to continue to bring these blockbuster guests on and uh, reach new audience. So uh, if you haven't done that, please go ahead and uh, and do that now. Yeah, that would be cool. We'd appreciate that. And uh, we'd like to hear from you, hear what you, uh, what you like. And uh, what you don't like. That's right. We're always available at uh, LimitUp at TopStepTrader.com. So send us an email just to say hi. Cool. Cool. All right, Mark. Uh, you ready? I am ready. All right. Uh, first off, I want to say, hey, thanks for dropping in. And uh, with no further ado, let's get to the conversation at hand. Trader and whistleblower slash bounty hunter, Haim Bodick. <laughs> Hey, very nice to have you here with us today. You've been a very important person uh, for the financial industry and filtering out a lot of the cloudiness in the financial industry. Um, now, you've been a forefront of electronic and high-speed trading for 25-plus years. Uh, you worked at Hull Trading, Goldman Sachs, UBS. Uh, you also have your own trading firm that accounted for as much as uh, half a percent of the U.S. options trading, that's crazy, and uh, uh, your work led you to the largest fine of a public exchange at the time, $14 million, to BATS Global Markets, and more recently, uh, another $14 million fine for the New York Stock Exchange. Very nice to have you here, and uh, how are you, sir? 
last two topics, I'll say I'm making a lot of friends these days, right? <laughs> In terms of the fines. Well, you know what, though? You're making a lot more friends that probably don't have the 10,000 three-piece suits. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, very uh, much. You know, so somebody going up to bat, somebody going up to bat for uh, a lot of us that are trading. And, uh, you know, I, I was talking to my producer, Mark, and he's like, oh, you've had Heyman before. And I was like, yeah, we talked about it. And and he's got this this new, uh, a new path for the New York Stock Exchange and, and caught them with their basically pants down. Now, if, if we could, hey, could we start at the beginning, go all the way back to the beginning where um, we did have Blair Hull on here. Blair, actually, Blair came into the broadcast booth. He was in Chicago, uh, stopped wow. in, and we had a fantastic podcast. He was, uh, um, he was really at the forefront when we're talking about the mathematical uh, option formulas. Uh, how did you end up at Hull's trading firm, out of college. Well, I had uh, spent actually the first two years at a firm uh, called Magnify, um, and uh, I had come out of um, you know just my undergrad was uh, focusing on on an artificial intelligence track, and the timing was great uh, at Magnify. I got a job uh, doing credit card uh, fraud detection, so going over enormous amounts of data and uh, determining if uh, the card has been stolen. Uh, and using uh, machine learning methods to do that. And then uh, around 1997, um, there was a lot of hype about using those methods in finance to do financial uh, forecasting. And, uh, you know, I decided I was going to get into the industry. And uh, I was very lucky to have joined uh, Hull Trading you know, at, a, at a great time when they had lots of research going on. And, uh, you know, my initial um, entry point was to work on those issues. And to that problem, and, and um, but uh, you know, whole trading was really more of a you know market making firm, and um, really more along the lines of arbitrage. And uh, while I was in Hull, I I shifted towards um, uh, you know really black box uh, trading and algorithmic trading logic because that's really the the time uh, Europe had just uh, transitioned into electronic options markets, and then. And the, as you know, the U.S. was uh, in the process of of uh, transforming with the launch of the ISC. Uh, so anyway, it was good timing, uh, you know, right interest, right background, right time. What was it like trading back in those early days? You know, the, the land of opportunity. But now we talk about the land of opportunity and we got to put a question mark after it. What was it like back then? Well, what's what's funny is in terms of like my, uh, you know, let's say my role and my entry point, um, my job was was really to automate um, traders. So let me just tell you about my focus. And uh, you know, I I, you know, I punted around and did you know call it uh, you know day trading my uh, my uh, PA just like everyone else did, but. Um, in terms of like my experience of trading, I kind of came in at an angle I think is quite different than other people's experience. So the, what, what was happening? I'll explain the difference between uh, the uh, so that you know the U.S. operations of Hull Trading had um, were you know floor exchanges and and the European markets were electronic, 
Uh, Hull was a you know very sophisticated quantitative trading firm, and uh, they basically, uh, you know, the the upstairs unit would would um, run a um, uh, you know let's say a machine, right? A a, a, a very complex uh, market making system that would uh, create theoretical values for the um, products we traded and risk adjustments and and adjustments to for future uh, expectations, you know, and you know. Uh, and um, that really translate those into um, theoretical bidding offers and then um, the further adjustment into actual bids and offers. Um, and those uh, markets in the U.S. were beamed down to handheld systems that – you know, uh, a number of the market makers that adopted this technology at the time. So, right. you know, basically little i uh, little um, iPads, right? Which which had the the, the market makers markets on it, and uh, the floor traders would trade off those uh, markets. They would make decisions in the pits on on when to buy and what to sell. Um, in Europe, we didn't have those. Uh, you know anything to beam down to right we had to have the machine make the trade and um i think what was kind of maybe unexpected for for many people and i and this was my entry point is really the floor trader was doing a heavy amount of decision making um you know he wasn't just trading on the markets that were sent down right they he they were making uh decisions on what uh, on when to step up, you know, when not to participate, uh, and they were acting as very complex filters on these prices that were being beamed down to them. So when you tried to basically trade on those prices in an electronic market, you just got beat up by the market. You needed to have an extra layer of intelligence that decided when to execute and when not to execute. And so my job was, you know, in this long-winded uh, you know, history here. My job was to um, uh, work on the algorithms that uh, decided what orders to send at what prices, at what sizes uh, into the European exchanges. And then as the industry progressed, uh, I did the same thing with the U.S. as the U.S. One Electronic. When you went to Goldman, when it was acquired, uh, when when uh, it acquired Hull Trading in 1999. Now, you know, we talked to Blair, and, and he said that uh, uh, Goldman said that you needed to be in the package, or else the deal was off. Well, the the, the team, <laughs> the team needed to be in the package. I'm kidding. But yeah. yes, now when when it acquired Hull Trading in 1999, now that that seemed like like a shift to electronic trading that accelerated. Could you walk us through that? Yeah, well, I mean, the the at the time, um, I mean, you also, you know, you, prior to the whole acquisition, you had the legendary, uh, um, you know, legendary trading firm O'Connor was was acquired mm -hmm. by by Swiss Bank. Uh, and so you, you actually had, um, you know, a good history of uh, quantitative proprietary trading firms basically providing value to the um, uh, to the bank, and, and this really had to do with culture. Uh, when when a call trading was acquired by Goldman, uh, I remember being quite disoriented. A number of us were quite disoriented by 
um, you know, how um, social and how, you know, customer focused it was. Um, you know, we had come from an industry where you live and die based on, on, on performance and in terms of technical uh, contribution. So they, have, they had some very smart, accomplished people technically at, um, at Goldman. But, you know, the, um, you know, it really wasn't, uh, you know, we were basically the geeks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we kind of um, uh, felt a little bit uh, displaced. And some people did well and kind of adapted to the ecosystem there. Right. And, uh, and others left. Um, and, and there was actually quite a, over time, a lot of, uh, hull trading DNA ended up in a lot of other, um, very, um, you know, important firms, uh, both in high frequency trading and in the, uh, banks. And I, of course, uh, eventually went with the team to, um, to UBS. Right. Now, as that progressed, you went to UBS, what did you do at UBS and, uh, developing your own, firm your own trading firm tell us a little bit about that uh, that path well at ubs the mandate was quite similar we were um it's you know we our mandate was to build a a functional um uh, option market maker that you know operated at the same scale as whole trading uh and uh so you know it was a group of uh whole trading um you know, pe people basically who were on the uh, uh, M MD track but hadn't made it yet, and uh, you know this was our opportunity to show we could could build it, and uh, we did. I mean, it was uh, the the ISE actually said we were the fastest rollout of a market making business and platform in in their history uh, at that time, um, and I think. Uh, there are very, very few bank builds that succeeded over that decade, and you know that at the time that was we were one of them. Uh, so by uh, 2007, I was very, very um, cocky, and uh, uh, decimalization occurred in the options market, and um, <clears throat> I recognized it was going to require a rebuild of um, strategy and the system to accommodate or cope with uh, what I expected to be a, a much more uh, basically an environment where um, latency mattered a lot more and precision uh, mattered to a degree that we had not yet seen. And I went around looking for a place to rebuild and um, uh, originally got offers to do it at um, – a uh, number of, of uh, competitor investment banks, but then re uh, realized through the process that we could launch as a as a solo enterprise. So we uh, basically took the entrepreneurial route and uh, launched solo. And um, uh, I think uh, maybe it was about. I think we did our first uh, trade with the system about ten months after we started, and we you know rapidly scaled up. Uh, this is uh, you know. One month before the financial crisis struck, uh, we actually scaled up during the financial crisis. And over a period of four or five months, we basically achieved that, you know, half percent market share and um, full full footprint over the U.S. option markets. That's, that's incredible. <laughs> half. I'm pr I'm proud of. It. I'm half. still proud of you it. You should be. Day. You should be. <laughs> Damn. Uh, um, I mean, the thing is, when I was on the trading floor, it, it's like. You know, most of the guys in the options, you know, those guys are the geeks. Well, yeah, those guys are the they're they're the smartest ones making the biggest money. 
You know, we're over here punching, fighting, scratching, biting uh, to try to get the open outcry. But, you know, it, it actually, you guys are like behind the scene. You know, you made uh, you made trading uh, what it is today. Uh, and like you said, it just sort of, it, 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 I wouldn't say it blossomed, you know. Uh, it blossomed into the... Uh, uh, electronics. Well, now, I think of it as I think of it as just you know just evolution. I mean, my role, uh, and you know, that's because Henny at the beginning because you said what was trading like in, in the day, and you know, uh, my experience was more about uh, automating out people, right? And um, a lot of the learning experience as things progressed was was realizing that although we could build these incredibly sophisticated systems um that th that there was a cost to um you know uh sidelighting the human trader um the uh, uh i heard uh that um you know that interactive brokers or you know the timber hill the option market making interactive brokers that you know, thomas petterfee over there was was very much a pioneer in terms of automating the business and um big proponent of uh, automatic markets and what i heard was after he finally got his dream which is a pure you know automated trading environment that um uh that they started hiring back uh floor, uh, floor traders uh, upstairs because of the uh, element that was basically missing um so there's kind of a i'd say there's a bit of a cautionary tra uh, tale in that um when you go completely black box um you, can, you really can only automate you know a portion of the business i mean uh machines are not uh are, are really not uh, um designed to trade concentrated risks in um a, you know a black box automated manner and one of the issues there is that a lot of the institutional need for liquidity in the market has to do with concentrated risks and black box uh, strategies are not so great with those so you know there's a lot of complaint about diminished liquidity and you know of course we have uh, um, you know higher incidence of flash crashes and other things there's lots of elements of the modern marketplace that um, didn't live up to the you know to the rocket science uh, you know kind of description that you um, uh, note there and you know and, and and after trading machines you know i'm i'm known for uh exposing you know many of those structural flaws which some of which are due to abuse or or uh you know um illegal activity you know right now now him you know we're talking about uh the evolution you mentioned the word evolution and uh, now when we uh talk about uh, the programs, you know, we about maybe let's say about 20 years ago, if you mentioned that, uh, you know, at this time, cars will be driving themselves and go on the streets and highways and get from point A to point B. All right. Probably 20 years ago, you probably would have said, no, that's, that's not going to happen. All right. Maybe it might. Um, but the progression of technology, do you think there's any um door that might be open that someday we might see uh these i'm going to call them machines thinking for themselves or n not exactly 
thinking for themselves, but reacting to what needs to be reacted to. I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, 12 o'clock comes around, the machine's going to order lunch. Uh, you know, I'm talking more, um, more of a technical side of thinking. Well, I mean, you know, I, I know this, the, the AI has gotten a big, um, you know, boost in the, in the last uh, few years. And we're seeing things that, you know, that, uh, 20 years ago, um, we didn't think were possible. Um, actually, as we were talking about whole trading, I remember in 1999, um, we were sitting around uh, in a kind of a strategy session and, and uh, with the traders, and the topic was basically how to design, you know, uh, you know, a uh, future state market making engine. And uh, they, one of the requirements we said that we could have two traders trade. Uh, all options in S&P 500 from a single platform. And I, I think about that time, there might have been 100 traders involved in doing this at Hull. And wow. people kind of just laughed at it like it was, um, you know, really future state, like not something we would necessarily see in the next maybe 10 years. Um, I think it was 2003, maybe, you know, maybe four or five years later, I was sitting down, it was noon, but I was sitting at the desk, and there was a senior trader, and there was a junior guy, and there was only two guys on our desk, and we were trading, you know, the pretty much all the names in the S&P 500. <laughs> and oh, I thought to myself, "Wow, we yeah. did that!" You know, it was it wasn't even it was uh, it, that my goal was just to do what I did, right? But just by solving these problems, the the business did change, and I, and it, and I just was kind of struck at that moment. I was like, they, yeah, wow, they would not, you know, they, those guys I was hanging out with earlier, they would never, wouldn't believe this is possible, but but it is. So we're going to, of course, see things in trading like that. But um, one of the things I'll say just generally about, call it HFT or market making, automated algorithmic trading, it really comes down to strategies and whether or not the strategies, um, you know, uh, learn, uh, learn certain properties, you know, through back testing, or whether or not they encapsulate certain concepts, such as, you know, uh, you know, certain arbitrage concepts or whatever that are that are more like concrete, you know, mathematical, um, you know, valuation pricing kind of kind of methods. Um, you know, all of the the, the algorithms in the end are basically um, a strategy. And what humans are good at, which I would say machines are not good at now, are they're not good at recognizing when a strategy is not working and adjusting or responding to a new strategy. So what, what do black box traders, strategists do now? Well, they look at their performance in their machine. They look at where it failed and got gamed. And then they do an adjustment, you know, um, and they roll out different versions and that's what we've been doing for a very long time now um some of the machine learning stuff helps there but you know i'm i'm um the, this idea that you know and what you're saying there is you know will one day will we see uh machines action acting intelligently as opposed to just um running strategies that are really created by humans you know um i don't know i don't know where the dividing line is but you know, in many ways, at least right now, it's not really necessary to have a smart machine. I mean, many of the strategies that make money are not that smart. 
Uh, you just have to know where they work and where they don't work, and you need to turn them on and off. I mean, we have a joke in the business that a black box's trader's main responsibility is the on-off button. And, and, and that's, that's very difficult, on, on it, or off. Yeah, it is. It, it, actually, it is weirdly because yes. you, you are making an assessment when the machine isn't working, and you know, often it's, it doesn't make sense to wait for, you know, like a think about the situation with Night Capital, right? Oh my goodness! Somebody yeah. should have shut that thing off forty minutes earlier. <laughs> yeah, uh, coming in that next day, and it was like. You know, guys, guys on the trading floor are trying to get on the floor. Hey, can you get me on the floor? You know, I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm like, I, what happened? I had yeah. no idea. No, no idea. that's your, that's a, the perfect example of you had one task, right? <laughs> one job, one job only, <laughs> right? Um, so, um, so anyway, anyway, you know, one thing I'd like to talk about that you brought up at the beginning of this, which I think should be of interest to your listeners, is the you know my experience with the the New York Stock Exchange. Oh, please! I was, uh, abuse. I was ready to change gears there. Now, yeah. let me ask you. Now, um, we're talking about uh, talking about the Bat Global Markets. All right, that was public exchange at the time, largest fine, fourteen million. Also, the New York Stock Exchange. That was not too long ago. Um, now, I think the first situation, what I wanted to ask you, I've got this question and I'm sort of wiping my hands together. This is a, a juicy question. Now, a, a lot of traders have times when their strategies go out of favor with the market. Now, your case was a lot different. Now, when you were trading and, and you sort of noticed something, um, the red flags and, and, mm-hmm. and th- things weren't working. But wait a minute, you know, th- this worked before and, and you know, uh, I read some of the articles pertaining to this. Now, I wanted to know, uh, speaking of the red flags, uh, what red flags told you something was wrong? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I'm doing a lot of um, uh, expert witnessing cases now where I'm measuring uh, execution performance uh, related to certain deficiencies or, or abuses. And um, it kind of struck me. Um, because, you know, if you look at it from one angle, um, you could say this is new work for me. But, you know, why uh, – you know, I find myself kind of reusing the same tool set. And I think it just goes back to that the market makers measure um, when uh, – that they're making the, the, the expected edge off trades on, on average – that they expect to make, and they are also very, very concerned with slippage or being picked off or doing adverse trades, right? Um, and um, when uh, trades are when, – when executions are the result of abusive scenarios, then those that same tool set can be used to identify abuse, you see what I mean, or deficiencies uh, in execution. Um uh, so it can actually be used – the same methodology market makers to make sure they're making money can be used to determine uh, if uh, conflicts of interest are uh, involved with a, a broker uh, you know, subjecting order flow to um, uh, in, you know, inefficient um, performance d- due to some conflict of interest where they monetize it some other Manner and so you know this payment for order flow and rebates and things like that. So I'm doing a lot of work in that space right now, and um, I, as I've gone through the experience, I'm you know I'm I'm 
realizing, you know, that everything I'm doing now with historical data, I used to have it ticking real time on my screen. Um, I have screenshots from back then, you know, and, and, and this is the trading machines days. Uh, you know, I know what algorithm, um, I know what name. I, I mean, I can cut and dice real time with like, you know, those little tree based views where you can like open it up. So I could basically look at where, where, um, which exchanges and which algorithms were performing poorly. And I could open it up and in a few seconds determine if it was clustered around certain names or a sector, if it was spread wide out. And uh, those are the tools I used to identify, um, you know, you know, not only if the machine was working, but let's say somebody got faster than us on some exchange and started picking us off. I'd see those. Uh, our system identified those in real time and calculated them. And we had a whole entire subsystem that was literally involved to say, uh, you know, did the trades that we that we executed, um, you know, do, did they have the were they executed um, at the edge levels? That, that we expected, uh, you know, or, you know, did we retain that edge basically over different uh, time horizons? So that's basically what happened with direct edge is that, um, uh, and it's kind of funny, is that, you know, direct edge is one of the last exchanges to um, roll out um, these um, queue jumping, you know, hide not slide order types. They actually existed in, in most other exchanges. And uh, as early as, what, December, um, I think it was December 2008, you know, uh, after we had scaled up fully, um, I, re I recognized, you know, that certain exchanges were very, um, quite toxic to trade on. But, like, I, we could not execute, it, we, you know, we'd get adverse slippage and we would, not get the trades that we wanted and i just i just said to myself well that's a toxic exchange everybody knows you know nasdaq's toxic or whatever mm -hmm. and um and on direct edge the trading looked great well that's just because they hadn't rolled out all the the hft bullshit yet <laughs> okay. right. excuse, excuse my language but that's, they didn't roll out the no. features and and you know later on in my discussions with their with their their rep you know he was giving me this sob story that they had to roll out all this shenanigans to keep the HFTs happy. Um, so everybody was doing it. And, and what happened is I got very, very dependent on executing on direct edge because the other exchanges had already gone bad and I was already getting, you know, Q jumped and other shenanigans on the other ones, right? right. But, but direct edge actually looked pretty good. Then I go on a vacation in May of, 2009, I come back and Direct Edge is falling off a cliff, and it looks worse than any other exchange. <laughs> they they knew you walked away. All right, <laughs> come on, he's gone. Let's go. <laughs> no, so I didn't know what to do, you know. So I started redirecting order flow to other exchanges and trying to study the problem. And you know, you get into this thing where you think, oh, I got a bug, or I got to get faster here or there, or mm -hmm. I get smarter. Um, but quite literally, Direct Edge was handling our orders. Um, differently and subjecting them to you know what one hft insider referred to as the hot dog factory <laughs> so you know now i'm in the hot dog factory and i don't know it and uh yeah i felt like a complete dummy when in december 2009 i was kind of in, invited in um right you know i read about that and it was it was like a wtf 
It's like, oh my yeah, God. Yeah, exactly. It, like these guys, you know, I was sitting there and later on, I forgot if the, I think somebody else told me that what had happened is they, they had rolled this stuff out with the view that um, they were going to attract these HFTs, you know, big ones, very well-known ones, um, probably the ones that are referred to as H, you know, trading firm A and B in the SEC order, right? There were two firms that really, really benefited uh, or at least were, you know, got the inside track on the on all the stuff at DirectEdge, and you can read about that in the SEC order. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, my what I heard, and I guess it's rumor mill, but um, – I heard that their mandate was to get these firms to get to attract their market share away from the other electronic exchanges, which would you know be BATS and ARCA and NASDAQ. And um the HFTs didn't come. And you know, now they gotta go and I think you know what I was told is they got in their head they were gonna uh, create new HFTs. They were gonna help out smaller firms. And that's the only reason I was told about any of it, I think. Again, you know, it's a little bit hearsay or speculative, right. but, you know, mm-hmm. why, you know, I was exactly. not told about these things until six months later, and then all of a sudden I was invited in the club. Amazing, huh? Amazing. Now, you know, I was reading somewhere where you, there was over a million lines of code you had to pour over to figure things out here. Now, what was the process like? Now, how did you go about approaching, can I call it the puzzle? Yeah, well, I mean, the the thing, um, the the even though there's lots of code, and I think a lot of the, um, you know, I think operationally, um, it might be between three hundred and five hundred thousand lines of of code, maybe in our system was was used uh, operationally because there were a lot. I, if I can just go back in time and remember things, there were lots of of projects and models and things that were rolled out. That were, um, you know, either simulation environments or uh, strategies that didn't that, that didn't work out. So when you when you have a really heavy, aggressive um, development effort for you know multiple years, um, you get a lot of code buildup. But you know how right. much is in there really? Um, now, you know, I can, you know, I can actually give you some things that can kind of explain why um, uh, there might be that many lines of code, right? At least in the old days, it used to be about maybe 10,000 lines of code, and I'm talking about like 20 years ago, uh, to build an exchange interface to one exchange. Um, And... You know, if you're connecting to 25 exchanges, there you go, 250,000 lines of code right there, right? Um, Now, some people listening to this podcast might say, that's crazy. You know, that's, uh, you know, best in class is, you know, 2,000. And, yeah, that's if you have the right libraries. And and over time, people get a lot better at at, at creating really tight, compact solutions – um, and and so yeah, I guess a very very efficient system, I imagine, would be two to three hundred thousand lines of code or whatever. But um, you know that that would be one that would be like refined over years. Where and usually firms with a lot of money are often interested in removing lines of code to increase performance. Right, every line of code of some can have the risk of decreasing your total performance. So anyway, as you go through that whole thing, you realize that, yeah, there are lots and lots of pieces 
and um, there might be a hundred different components. And the first job is to figure out which component. Um, for me, it was kind of obvious, right? I knew it wasn't in my stock, uh, my option trading. It was in my stock trading system. And I knew it was clustered on direct edge. Also, another uh, thing that we do um, is, as we uh, when we we roll out, um, you know, um, trading machines itself rolled out every maybe every two days we'd roll out modifications to our software. Uh, those are well documented. Um, you know, we have a, a change log of everything that was done. So when I came back in May 2009 and saw this thing fall off a cliff, I was actually obsessed with the, the small limited number of changes that my developers had done over the last month in the stock trading system. And the thing is, there weren't that many changes, so it was complete mystery. Now, l let me mention something else that I did see. Um, now, this was, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, after you were so-called invited into the club. You find the new, the new order type that seemed to be the center of it all. Talking about how you put down, uh, or you called it the hide, not slide. Can you give me a little detail on that? Break that down. Yeah, well, it's funny because you know, from some people's perspective, that's um, uh, you know, there's a club, there's a rank in the club. A lot of people who criticize me saying, "Oh, I knew about hide, not slide," right? And for, for you know, I don't know four years or whatever it took for the SEC to act on this. Um, uh, you know, I'm fighting back, uh, you know, my peer group in the industry, you know, where, where the message is, it's your fault you didn't know about this thing. Meanwhile, the rest of Wall Street is like, what the hell is high not slide? How come I never heard of this? <laughs> right? So it's like, you know, how much homework was do you, are you supposed right. to have done? But I, what was fascinating to me is a number, many of the people who really kind of, would kind of wail on me on Twitter or whatever, you know, when the SEC order came out and, and said that only trading firm A and B had full information on it, yeah. <laughs> then they then they turn and they get angry. Wait, sure. I didn't know about that, you know. So um, when you say the club, I'm just trying to say that there is a lot of rank in this club, okay? Mm -hmm. And um, secondly, I'll say that at that time, I didn't know at the time that there was an even more toxic order type called the post-only ISO. I'm sorry, repeat the, the post? Post-only ISO, which is pretty much the queen bee. Okay. It's right. the most powerful order type of all. It beats the crap out of high-night slide. Okay, break that down. It's, <laughs> dissect that for me. I yeah, want, what's post, it about? I, uh, it's post-only mm -hmm. uh, ISO, which is intermarket sweep order. Okay. I did not even know that that was operational. It turned out that it had been secretly rolled out on like most exchanges around that time. Uh, there's only a few exchanges, if you look at the documentation, where you can even see it supported. I actually have email, um, interactions sorry, with two exchanges where they denied it existed. A help desk and a sales rep from two different exchanges denied the damn order type existed. You couldn't find it in its um, um, documentation. And then like a year later, um, these two exchanges rolled out order type statistics, and then you find out the order types five percent of their volume. Ah, okay. Yeah. So and I'm so, so where am I? Like hide not slide. Yeah, that's a big deal. But I'm like, you know, that should have been the headline. The fact that nothing was done, that whole scandal was pretty much swept under the rug. Is something, you know, I've been a bit, um, you know, it's kind of like. 
I've been a whistleblower for over a year and did not know that this order type, the post-only ISO, was was su- supported. Uh, it had definitely not been approved by for by regulators on those exchanges, and and you know basically um, that was never addressed. So I'm, I'm actually uh, there's a a book collection of articles on high frequency trading that's going to be published by the University of Oxford coming out where I give um, a very very long uh, you know postmortem on on the, that order type and also you know including the regulatory response which I'm not happy with now, now, hey let me ask you when would you use the hide not slide well easiest way to say it is you're, you're always supposed to use it Okay, so so every order that you would put in, every limit order, every limit order, um, you know, with a with a price that that uh, is um, uh, non marketable. Okay. Uh, matter of fact, uh, I want to say non marketable because now you're getting into like the gray area of HFT. Okay. But if I um, if I basically improve the market, a bit a penny higher than the best bid. Uh, on one market, and it locks, uh, mean, meaning that it's at the same price as the um, uh, offer on a, on a on a an away market. So Nasdaq's bidding ten dollars, Arca's offering ten dollars, right? If I'm bidding ten dollars and and causing that lock, which I guess some people could call marketable, but it's non-marketable because it's on a different exchange than the other in, in, my, in my definition here. Uh, that's actually the exact conditions where you're supposed to use it. So basically, anytime you improve the market, if you're not using a high-not slide, you're in trouble. Um, you know, unless high-not slide doesn't exist. And, you know, you may know that um, BATS, after it acquired direct edge, um, uh Retired hide not slide. So I, um, I guess I successfully killed the order type. <laughs> you know, you, you know, you say I'm, I'm a whistleblower. I, I sort of more like to define it as a financial detective. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little better. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, financial you know, detective. From my, from my, uh, uh, actually, I'm a bounty hunter. Really, like I didn't. <laughs> there you I didn't go. Whistle- I, I didn't. No, really, I didn't. Uh, technically, a bounty hunter is someone who goes after. You know, I did not work for Direct Edge. I was not an insider there. I just found them doing some shenanigans, and I freelancing. Yeah, and uh, there's an award process to get it. Um, but uh, let me tell you about Nizy. I mean, you know, you, I don't want to go into details of how not slide works. It now doesn't even exist anymore. So you know, it's a whole new world. Um, but I want to tell you about Nizy because Nizy really just blew me away, and I think it was such a, a cautionary instruct. You know, this instruct instructive tale for for the day traders the reason why i'm bringing it up is that um i didn't discover uh uh the uh, abuse I, I did you know i was the one who did the the deep dive and and uh kind of mapped out all the nuances and the systematic details of the, of the abuse there but um uh the problem um was basically brought to me by a day trader uh, I want to say a day trader. He's kind of, you know, he's not really an algo guy, but he's really uh, a day trader. You know, he operates as a, as a, as a kind of, um, you know, you know, maybe black box, but you know, it's it's like he writes his own algos, but he's a trader, right? He's like covering the whole thing. He's a small little business, and um, you know, he's not a. And I'm I'm trying to say that he's. You know, he's more like the the people who would listen to this um, podcast because he did not. Uh, own a membership in an exchange, right? He wasn't a market maker. 
uh, you know, he didn't have uh, he didn't come from that background. He came from the background of of um, you know people who are uh, coming up with uh, systematic trading ideas and are trying to compete in this market from you know as as a little guy. He's definitely he's got a nice niche. He's really good, been successful, but he you know he's a little guy, and he contacted me and he says I'm seeing this very very strange behavior where I think my hidden orders on the New York Stock Exchange are being sniffed out, and I'm thinking how many times has somebody called me saying that they think their hidden orders are being seen, right? I mean the initial reaction is look that's just paranoia that's conspiracy theory. Um, you know, that's not the explanation, but, uh, it, you know, I, I, um, uh, you know, I agreed to look at his data and, 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 and my view was whatever I saw in his data, I was going to, you know, from my background, I should be able to come up with some explanatory reason. Um, but the thing that was so weird about it is he could show that when he put these hidden orders in the book, that there were other orders that would just pile on top of them. Like if I if I put my order hidden order you know a dollar behind the best bid I don't expect a bunch of other orders to pile on to that price you know and he did have order book information so we could see it was happening and it would happen uh, you know immediately and you could just keep testing it over and over and like how the hell do these guys know they can just pile on top and he goes look these guys you know I'm putting my hidden order out there and they're piling on. And hidden orders have a lower priority than displayed orders, right? So actually, these guys were interfering with his execution. When his price got to the top of the book, they were already on top of him. And they had gotten on top of him, you know, milliseconds after he put his orders out there. And I was like, that is crazy because every single way I know how to detect a hidden order, and there are lots of tricks, um, it has to do with orders that are – um, at or better to the best bidder offer. Now, Haim, let me ask you with all this, you know, it, it, it wouldn't be hard to walk away with the impression that the, uh, the machines are out to get us. What do you think the future is for the point and click or discretionary trader? Well, let me just say one other fact about this thing that we found on Nisey. It turned out that it wasn't even HFTs abusing my trader. It was other point-and-click traders using floor brokers to abuse a special order type who had discovered this thing, and, and they were kind of doing it as a service, from what I understand. So the answer is you got to be a point-and-click trader who's plugged into um, the marketplace and um, – you know, if you aren't willing to engage in abuses like the one I just described, and some people, you know, I'm not condoning engaging, but you better uh, be plugged in enough that, you know, that your decision is either to engage in something you probably shouldn't or to walk away, right? Got to know when to walk away. Exactly. Um, and that's what the point and click trader has to figure out is when are the conditions stacked against him where he just shouldn't be part of the game. Totally agree. Uh, when the advantage is in your favor, then it's time to react. Um, now, l let me ask you something. When we had Blair here, is that something you learned from Blair? Only when you had the advantage? 
Well, Blair's view is is you know, and he's been pretty clear about this uh, through the through the years is to always trade when you have an edge, and um, you know the other aspect of his tradition is is to um, have you know um, you know to to basically have um, the edge captured over uh, you know quite a number of small bets, right? So his tradition was very very different. At Hull Trading versus uh, from like Susquehanna, where they were known for having you know five percent of their traders making most of the profit, that kind of thing. So uh, you know, so Blair, I guess I would say yeah, it, but um, you know, um, generally I, I don't think uh, uh, you know, Blair is more about systematic trading. So I'm not sure to what degree that translates um, to. Uh, traders um, who are not uh, applying systematic trading methods, but right. you know, def definitely the risk management aspect is to trade when you have an edge and not be there when you don't have one. Exactly. Now, Haim, let me ask you: to someone just getting started right now in the markets, what's your best piece of advice? Wow. Um, well, it depends what, what you're getting started out started with. I guess I would. Um, yeah, I I, I would actually. Um, of and this is just. I'm not sure if this is the best advice, but it's just the way I would approach that problem. If I if I if I was starting out and knew what I you know at least some of what I knew, um, you know, thing that's very interesting to me is that there are certain. Um, products and certain markets right where um uh basically order flow is segmented in a way so you can't trade it with it right and uh the the, the most uh, important of those markets is the u.s equities market so 40 percent of uh u.s stock volume you know executes in in uh off exchange and, and we say trades in the dark right and of the most lucrative and neutral orders to trade with, uh, those are the retail orders, and that's about 15% of U.S. stock volume. So when when a person can't effectively trade with 40% of the market and the most lucrative part of the market to trade against, they can't interact with at all because it gets traded off exchange by off exchange market makers who don't subject it to comp competition. That basically means you're going to trade um, with – Toxic order flows or order flows that are less lucrative to trade with. And then if you saturate that market with lots of things like HFT and hide not slide and all that, you know, you basically have a marketplace where it's so stacked against you just structurally that you're going to be more likely to get filled in the trades that you don't want to get filled on and less likely to be good filled in uh, trades at least at a good price than the ones that you are that you aim to get filled on. You see what I'm saying? So you have the best strategy in the world, really, but if all it did was trade when it's wrong, let's say it's wrong 2% of the time, but those are the only times you can get a good fill, you're dead. So I would say to stay away from markets that – um that have um, uh, where you don't have access to, to all the volume. And that those are, uh, you know, either markets where market makers can uh, have impediments where they can kind of, um, you know, gain uh, 
preferential treatment to you or markets where they can trade against flow where you can't trade against it. And I, and in many ways, that kind of directs you. You know, if I was going to rank, and I'll, I'll just say, um, you know, you know, forex might even be worse. I'm still going back and forth of that, but you know, let's just say equities, options, and futures. Right? I, I would say futures, from my perspective, are the most. Um, uh, is probably where you know the 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 the, the simp you know the, the the market with the least amount of those impediments built in uh, comparatively it's still there's still bad stuff there that you know um, should be addressed but uh, you know I'd say it's um, equities would be the the, the most a- asymmetric market followed by options followed by futures so maybe I'd say um, start out in future space. Right, so the even playing field. Now, Haim, if you can go back into time, tell yourself one thing as you started out, what would that be? Um, well, you know, I guess I'm happy with my decision to, um, um, you know, out direct edge and, and to, uh, you know, um, get that corrected. But in hindsight, you know, I probably should have, uh, you know, I actually, you know, leaked that information to Scott Patterson and it came out in this book, Dark Pools. And that actually um, I did before I, I uh, approached the SEC. Um, so the mistake I really th- made is that I don't think I should have addressed it as like a market f- uh, reform issue or uh, I think I should have. Uh, gone directly to SEC, not talked to journalists, and uh, and just submitted a um, uh, you know whistleblower report uh, uh, using the anonymous protection, because the reality is um, I should have kept trading and doing what I do over those period as opposed to go, you know having to defend my uh, my reputation as these multi year investigations went on. It wasn't worth it. Uh, it was a big, uh, you know, it was a lot of wasted time defending myself um, when my allegations were right. And the SEC actually told me I was right about everything in 2011. So the fact that I had to wait it out right. was miserable. Oh, my um, God. So, you know, that's maybe not the answer you wanted. But that was the mistake I, I uh, did, which probably many people appreciate, is I spent five years of my, my life um, – working publicly to make the markets better. I mean, I work with other whistleblowers now that um, they see bad stuff in the market. Um, you know, there's certain people who run trading firms who see bad stuff in the market. They uh, let the SEC know through the whistleblower program. And uh, even if they don't get an award, those issues tend to get cleaned up. And that's probably the better approach. Definitely a better approach. Better, better approach for the better market. And, um, Ham, let me ask you one last question here. Tell us about your company. Where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me at uh, highambodek.com. That's H-A-I-M-B-O-D-E-K.com. And um, I have a couple business lines right now. Um, I do, as I said, uh, a lot of work uh, in expert witnessing for both uh, uh, plaintiff and uh, defense Side, I'm actually doing on the defense side uh, a few um, uh, 
market manipulation cases uh, where I'm serving as an expert in assisting um, uh, the defense of uh, uh, day traders who – you know, I feel very strongly about uh, where the dividing line is between certain practices, and I, you know, I feel that certain practices are are being misconstrued by uh, regulators. Uh, so, you know, that's an area that I plan to do more work on, working with um, uh, traders who are um, interacting with the market, and uh, you know, whose strategies may uh, um, not be understood well by regulators. Uh, I do um, uh, a lot of whistleblowing, so we do bring in uh, people, work on whistleblower teams to um, turn in uh, abuses to regulators. So I'm I'm sure that gives them a lot of headache because sometimes I'm I'm more of a critic and sometimes I'm turning in uh, uh, abuses. Uh, And then uh, another uh, uh, thing I'm doing – uh, which is, uh, I think, launching in next six weeks or so. Is uh, I'm uh, working on launching a uh, li- uh, liquidity providing um, uh, market uh, maker fund in uh, crypto space. Uh, that that's a space that's okay. um, saturated. Yes. With with the market structure issues, so it's actually quite a good fee- fit for me. <laughs> And I'm uh, actually quite excited about it because this is kind of a space that's evolving where uh, I think my experience in the in the other part of the Wall Street, and I think I can do some good for the space. And I think I can, um, uh, you know, so uh, that's not really open to to um, any, uh, you know, anybody uh, that fund, but that's uh, that we, you know, we're not advertising it. But um, uh, I am interested in. Um, connecting up with other people who are very active in the crypto space. Yeah, real quick here, let me ask. Let me ask you about this crypto. Now, are you going to approach it the same way? I mean, it's just su- such a different market and such a different product. Um, are you going to sort of uh, go back to your market bounty hunter ways and uh, sort of a, you know sort of approach it that way? Well, um, I'm not uh, doing any. Um, you know, uh, um, whistleblowing. I mean, I do uh, go into the details to uh, learn, but you know, my fund is for uh, making markets in the, in the crypto space. So, okay. uh, you know, so from my perspective, uh, I look at crypto. You're right; it's a new market, but uh, it's really uh, up my alley in terms of the the kinds of properties that it has. Actually, a very good fit with what I do. Uh, way I approach markets, and I look at it as this is very similar to where the options market was in the seventies, or you know, late seventies, early eighties. Right. Hey, I appreciate your time here, um, and uh, everything you shared with us, uh, all the stories you shared with us, all the insight, and uh, all I can say is all the best to you. Keep going, my friend, and uh, hopefully we can uh, catch you back here again in this uh, this market arena. Okay. Thanks a lot, eh? All right. Ham, take care, Ham Bodick, and uh, check it out. Thanks a lot, Ham. All right, traders, as always, thanks for spending time with us. Make sure that you are subscribed to Limit Up on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you listen to podcasts to get alerted when our August episodes start dropping. I'd like to say thank you very much, and I'll see everyone next time. Take care. Bye-bye. 
Futures and Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.